When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello and welcome to Desert Island Dicks, the show that sees you marooned on a desert island after a plane crash with the worst people and worst things imaginable. Who they are and why they're a dick is up to you and here to share their Desert Island Dicks with us today is LBC and CNN broadcaster Ian Dale. Hello Ian. Hi. Thank you so much for coming in. I've been waiting to do this for months. Have you? Have you <laughs> I think you genuinely did. Well, you, you messaged on Twitter. Yeah, I, I just, I can't remember which podcast I listened to first. It was sort of sometime towards the end of last year. And I just thought it was a really different podcast. Really enjoyed it. So, okay. uh, yeah, really looking forward to it. I appreciate it. Well, you're more than welcome. Should we dive in? Who's yeah. going, who's going to be your first person? Well, one thing that I've noticed in a lot of your podcasts is that people cop out and they pick a generic type of people rather than centering on an individual. So, so there's no copping out in this podcast. Okay, James. all right, I'm interested, but, yes. But um, the, the people that I'm going to pick, they do kind of represent a group of people. And the first one I'm going to pick is Richard Maidley. Richard Maidley. Because I did, I do Good Morning Britain from time to time uh, with Jackie Smith. Um, we, we do a podcast together for the many. And we, we used to do a double act on the Sky News pay-per-view. So we, we're quite used to each other's company. We bounce off each other quite well. So I've done a couple of uh, Good Morning Britons with her. And normally it's either with Susanna Reid and Piers Morgan or Ben Shepherd and Kate Garraway. Last week it was with Richard Maidley and Charlotte Hawkins. Okay. And the day before, uh, Richard Maidley had done an interview with the Defence Secretary, Gavin Williamson, which got quite a lot of press coverage because he terminated the interview, which is something that as an interviewer you just don't normally do. And Gav- he'd asked Gavin Williamson about the time uh, he told the Russians to shut up and go away. Okay. And um, Gavin Williamson didn't answer the first time, didn't answer the second time, then didn't answer the third time. And so <laughs> Richard Maidley just terminated the interview. Just midway just absolutely just cut him off um and i thought that that was actually quite a bad thing for an interviewer to do and i, I as an interviewer myself it's what i do professionally mm. if i had ever done that which i don't think i've ever done i would regard it as a failure on my part absolutely. rather than the interviewee's part definitely yeah so anyway the next day we go on and i was thinking that good morning britain probably wouldn't have liked that because it probably means that gavin williamson will never go on their program again But at the beginning of the show, at six o'clock, there he is with all the papers in front of him, um, basically sort of saying what a brilliant job he'd done. And I thought, really? That's a bit self-indulgent. There's so many news stories you could talk about, and you talk about your own story. So 15 minutes later, Jackie Smith and I go on. And he starts, again, we thought we were there to talk about child, ob- child obesity. That's That was in the news headlines. And he says, well, it's the best press I've ever had. What, what did you think of the interview? 
So Jackie, uh, I thought quite funnily, just said, well, of course, the question you should be asking, Richard, is this, which, of course, is what politicians do when they want to avoid a question. He then came to me and said, well, what did you make of it, Ian? So I said, well, Richard, um, do you not feel that as an interviewer you failed in your job in that interview and looked him straight in the eye? Well done. Because I thought, what a, I mean, you might as well get your cock out and have a wank. Because that's, that, that's what he was doing, effectively. And there was that momentary look in his eyes where he thought, shit, what do I say to that? And he said, well, that, that's a fair point, I, I suppose. And then for the next 10 minutes, he didn't look at me once and directed every single question to Jackie. Really? And there, there was a preamble to that where we'd got there about quarter to six. I mean, why, why on earth do I do JMB at quarter, at quarter past six? Actually, because mm. I like doing it with the presenters actually are really good. They always let you have your say. Anyway, walk into the makeup room, say, hi, Richard, because I had met him before. I'd interviewed him on my programme. Didn't cut him off, by the way. Yeah. And, um, and he didn't acknowledge me at all. He was just sort of got his hairspray out, spraying his magnificent mane of hair, which it is magnificent. Very 1980s still, but I'm, I'm jealous because, as you can see, I'm a bit of a slaphead. And he just didn't even acknowledge my existence. And I thought, you rude tosser. Because <laughs> yeah. one thing I have learned in radio is when you have a guest in the studio, mm. OK, you may be broadcasting when they walk in, but acknowledge them, make them feel welcome, and you're going to get a better interview. Yeah. Um, but he clearly hadn't been to that school of broadcasting. So we didn't start off on a very good uh, level, really. So I, I'm picking on Richard Maley, but he's not alone in that. And the problem is that there is a whole school of interviewers, not just political interviewers, but interviewers who think it's about them. Mm, it's, like yes. this, it's like this podcast. You know it's not about you, even though it's your podcast. It's about the people you have in, and you let them talk, and that's what you need to do. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I take the view that if um, you have someone in to talk about something... Let them talk, because mm. if, if you don't interrupt them all the time, they're not going to be defensive. They're actually going to say something. It's like politicians. When they come into the studio, you know that they've been told by the spin doctors, you've got to get this message out. So you play the game a little bit. You let them get their message out. And if it's only a three-minute interview, that's all they're going to have time to do. If it's a 10-minute interview, after a few minutes, they run out of things to say. So you then prompt them to say something interesting. Yes. But you have too many interviews who think that they have to be aggressive. Mm. If you're aggressive to somebody their shutters go up immediately. Fern Britton, I think, is one of the finest interviewers in broadcasting. Um, she did an hour-long interview with Tony Blair on a Sunday morning once, and she got more out of him than any other interviewer had ever done because she was actually listening to what he was saying. If you're on the Today programme, on most BBC programmes, they have so many producers. The producers have got to do something, so they're writing out questions. Well, if you have a list of 10 questions in front of you as an interviewer, you're probably then going to read the questions out. Mm. So it's not a conversation. It's an artificial conversation. Yes. Whereas I don't like to have any questions there. I might have thought about what questions I'm going to ask, mm. but they've got to flow naturally. Yeah. There are so many interviewers now in, on radio and television who don't do that, and it's all about them. And I'm afraid, Richard Madeley, it's all about him. Wow. That, that does mean that I shall never be invited back when Richard May. Well, in fact, I was invited back the next day on Good Morning Britain. I said, no, thanks. Uh, really? Yeah, because I just. Look, I'm 55 years old. I'm not going to do programmes that I'm not going to enjoy. And I knew that I wasn't going to enjoy that. So I hope they invite me back when Piers and Susanna or Kate and Ben are on because I really enjoy doing that. But no, not going on with Richard Madeley anymore. Well, if you have a producer of Good Morning Britain, there's the message, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, they know, they know I've told them. <laughs> no, I mean, just to, I'm, I'm only going to repeat what you've just said. But I think uh, it's, it's just so important just to listen to what people are saying and react to, the, to what they're saying. Because you might have a list of questions in front of 
of view, but the most interesting thing is what they've got to say, right? So, Well, I remember last year uh, I did a phone-in with Theresa May, which is quite a brave thing for her to do in many ways because she's not a natural with people. Mm. Um, and she was in the studio for 40 minutes and it was all going quite well from her point of view until somebody asked about Brexit. And um, I then followed up with a question, well, if there's a second referendum, how would you vote Prime Minister? And the look of panic in her eyes at that question. Now, I thought that would have been a given. Brexit is her government's policy. She's the head of the government. So surely, even though she'd voted Remain before, it's a pretty easy answer to say she'd vote Brexit. But she couldn't bring herself to do it. Oh. And I, I then had to follow up three or four times. Um, and it was slightly buttock clenching but it was one of those it then went completely mad every news program covered it because she did that sort of gurning thing that she she does and um they weren't very pleased with me at the end of it it's not it's not i mean i don't mind if they're pleased with me or not but they seem to think that i'd kind of asked her deliberately asked her a difficult question well that is kind of your role as an interviewer but i didn't do it in a sort of aggressive harassing way it was a conversation, and it made it more effective because it was. Yeah, and you felt like she would have the right, have not the right answer, she would have an answer for that. Well, she ought to have had an answer because it was a question that I'd put to Jeremy Hunt, the health secretary, a couple of weeks before. Now, he'd been a leading campaigner for Remainer, and I was doing an interview with him at the Tory party conference, and much to my surprise, he said, well, I would vote Brexit now because uh, George Osborne's predictions of Project Fiat didn't come true and the European Commission have been trying to bully us, so I would vote Brexit now. Now, he was obviously trying to curry favour with the Brexiteers if there's a leadership contest and all the rest of it. So one of my retorts to Theresa May was, well, if your health secretary can answer this question, Prime Minister, I don't quite understand why you can't. And there was that, again, a slightly awkward Intake moment. Intake breath, yeah. And, but in the end, I mean, you can carry on as much as you like, but I think if you ask somebody the same question four times, you don't really need to go on. I mean, there's that famous interview with Paxman with Michael Howard where he asked the same question 12 times. But it all became about Paxman and his interviewing style then rather than the fact that Michael Howard wasn't answering the question. So I sort of thought, well, let's move on after this. Um, but yeah, that was quite a moment. Wow, you must have to do stuff like that all the time, though, right? When, when you're leading um, uh, phone uh, call-ins and stuff like that. Yeah, because part of the job is interviewing people. Um, often, I don't. I only have two minutes' notice. Of I'm about to interview the Home Secretary. They'll come in my ear and say, "Oh, we've we've finally got Amber Rudd. Let's get her on." And um, and that I haven't got any prepared questions, so you just go in and do it. And you're effectively using your political knowledge, your political background to know what to ask. And um, you, t- you can tell a lot about a politician by the way that they sometimes try and avoid the question. Robert Halfon, who is a Tory MP for Harlow, um, he's a great campaigner. He, he was the one that um, kept campaigning against the f- fuel rises. And he came on one day, and he clearly didn't know his subject, so I, I gave him an absolute going over, even though he's a quite close personal friend of mine, which is always slightly awkward when you're interviewing your friends. But <laughs> yeah. I've k- kind of got over the embarrassment of that now. And anyway, well, it was quite a tough interview for him. Um, later that evening, my phone went, and I looked down, and it was him on the phone. I was thinking, oh, shit, he's going to have a real go at me. So anyway, I answered. And he just said, Ian, I just want to thank you. I said, really? Why? 
he said because that taught me a lesson it taught me never to go into an interview where I was underprepared and I thought well what an adult yeah on the other hand Priti Patel the former international development secretary she was put up to do an interview with me on the day that Jeremy Corbyn became Labour leader so I she I just said to her um well what's your reaction to Jeremy Corbyn winning the leadership expecting her to say well I'd like to congratulate him but Instead, she just said, he's a danger to your family's security. He's a danger to the country's security. And she just trotted out all of these pre-prepared lies that she'd obviously been given by some Conservative Central Office spin doctor. So I I let her go on, and she finally stopped. I said, "Um, wouldn't you like to congratulate him? She said, no, it's not my job to congratulate him. And I said, no, but it'd be quite polite if you did, wouldn't it? Well, uh, she just then went on about how he was a danger to the national security (laughs) after that. I've never interviewed her since. Oh, right. And I imagine you may never again. No, and I don't really care. She she didn't take the adult line. She just Mm. thought, well, he's being an absolute bastard. Why why would I be interviewed with him again? I mean, some interviewers... I think do provoke politicians not to want to be interviewed by them. And, and you, you can do a very hard interview with a politician in the knowledge that they'll never come on again. Mm. But it's it's a sort of it's a short term bit of pleasure because in the long term you don't actually do your any program do your program any favours if you're not going to get them on again. So sometimes you do have to play the game a little bit. Be measured. Yeah. 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 Okay. Had he had many dealings with? Uh, sorry to go back to Richard Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> had he had many dealings with him before this? event i've interviewed him a couple of times once on the phone once in the studio and he is the sort of person who is great in an interview where you ask him a question mm. and he'll just go on and on and on because i mean that's what he does for a living he talks uh, and he's actually quite an interesting individual in some ways mm. um but i just think sometimes particularly when you're hosting a program like that you've also got to be acknowledged that you have another presenter alongside you mm. Um, which I didn't really feel that he did then. I mean, Susanna Reid and Piers Morgan have created this rather good double act and she'll roll her eyes when he's going over the top and all the rest of it. Um, but I, And obviously Richard had this wonderful partnership with his wife, Judy Finnegan. Um, but I, I don't, I'm not sure he's sort of recreated that with others. OK, I see. Uh, there's, uh, there's a few videos that I've seen circulate with Richard Maidley. Have you seen the one um, about the squatters? Have you seen it? He did a programme about squatters and, and it's just cut together at Richard Maidley quotes. And and honestly, it's like a modern-day Alan Partridge. It's, yeah. it's unbelievable. Well, that's what a lot of people said about do, him doing this interview. It's the sort of thing that Alan Partridge would have done. Mm. And um, sort of coming from Norfolk a bit, I, I, I can relate to Alan Partridge. OK. Uh-huh. <laughs> He says, um, "Okay, yeah, Richard Madeley. Um There are other unbelievable Richard Madeley quotes online from um, his time on GMTV." Yeah, I mean, well, this morning mainly. That, that this was morning, what he was sorry, known best for. This morning, um, and look, all good presenters have to have personalities, and they're, they're often marmite personalities. You either love them or you hate them. Uh, and if you look at sort of all the presenters on ITV at the moment, they, they have that sort of Marmite factor. BBC tend to go for people who are slightly, oh, have slightly less controversial characters, should we say. If you look at their breakfast programme, I mean, what is there to hate about Dan Walker? I mean, lovely guy. No one hates Dan Walker. No, no one hates Louise Minchin. Um, and uh, you, you can think of quite a lot of their other presenters that are like that. Um but ITV, they've got to differentiate themselves, and they were in the doldrums when that programme uh, started, and I think they're now catching up the BBC. OK. All right, Richard Maidley goes on as your first choice. He's the first person on your island. Um, who's going to be your second choice? 
Professor A.C. Grayling. Okay. Now, do you know who he is, James? Um, I do vaguely know who, <laughs> who he is, um, but should the listeners not know <laughs> so much well, about Well, he him? is apparently the country's leading philosopher. Yes, very, I've seen Very this. respected, written lots of books. Um, I don't really have a lot of truck with philosophers. I think philosophy is a complete and utter waste of time. I remember at university we were forced to do it in our first term, and... Um, we walked into the class or lecture theatre one day and um, we sat there for 20 minutes thinking, well, has the lecturer forgotten we're here? And he suddenly burst out of a cupboard <laughs> and then said, what did I mean by that? And I thought, you're a dick. It's as simple as that. I mean, what else is there to think about somebody who does that? Um, well, Professor Grayling has become one of these people who has been driven mad by Brexit. Now, right. there, there are plenty of them on both sides, but pre- mm. I would say predominantly uh, on the Remain side. Uh, Lord Adonis, Andrew Adonis, is another one, a very mild-mannered individual, somebody who was a, a minister in the Blair and Brown governments, nice man, very clever, obsessed by transport, but he's now become obsessed by how to reverse the Brexit referendum. Right. Um, there are plenty of others that I could mention, but Professor A.C. Grayling has recently gone to Brussels with the only Liberal Democrat MEP that there is, Catherine Bearder. They have been reduced to a rump of one in the European Parliament. And they were filmed on a programme, a documentary on Channel 4 called uh, Carry On Brussels, and it was meant to explain what the European Parliament does or doesn't mm-hmm. do. And she took him to meet Guy Verhofstadt, who is a former Belgian Prime Minister, but now the European Parliament's Brexit negotiator, so quite an important guy. Mm. Um, And he's been a bit of a thorn in the side of the Brits in the negotiations. Now, Professor Grayling said to him on film... Um, what we would like you to do in the European Union is to make these negotiations as difficult as possible for the British. Effectively, give us the worst deal possible, so then the British people will then vote in a second referendum to remain. Now, I have a word for someone like that, and it's traitor. Because you're effectively betraying your own country's interests. Now, most Remain supporters that I know have come to terms with the fact that we voted for Brexit and they accept that it's going to go through and they want the government to get the best deal possible. That's what most normal people would think. Yet there are there is a small group of Remainers, and I never use the term Remainers because I think it's, it's actually really insulting. People have got every right to stick with their views. But to, to actually want the European Union to give us the worst deal possible, I just think it's beyond the pale. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense, does it? I mean, in the, given the situation, you have to, um, you sort of, I think you have to go with it and, um, and you know, case or ass or But, ass, but right? the, the debate has become so polarised that um, there are no shades of grey in this, that there are, the, there are people who believe on the Brexit side, well, it's got to be a pure Brexit, so there must be no relations with the European Union at all afterwards, otherwise it's not a proper Brexit. And then on the other extreme, you have people who just have no respect for the fact that 17.4 million people voted leave, and therefore that all, they're, all they're interested in doing is reversing it. Now, somewhere in the middle, there has got to be a compromise. Mm. Um, and in the end, there will be, because that's what always happens with the EU. The negotiations go right up to the 59th minute of the 23rd hour. But in the end, you come to some sort of deal which both sides can live with. And I suspect that's what will happen here. You think that's what, what the outcome will be? Well, I hope it is because um, we ought to want to have a deal. I think there are voices in the EU that are saying, well, we've got to punish the Brits for doing this because if they do it and they're seen, it's seen to be successful for them, then the Italians will want to leave, then the Spanish will want to okay. leave. So you can understand that logic 
But in the end, we are the world's fifth largest economy. I mean, so many of our imports come from the EU. Are they really going to cost millions of jobs of their own people Mm. by effectively cutting off trade links with us? I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay, all right. Um, Back to Professor AC Grayling. I read an article in preparation for this. (laughs) When I say read, I skimmed. Um, (laughs) That said, what happened to the most hated man in academia? Well, how did he gain that moniker? Well, because he's actually quite rude and elitist and supercilious. Um, he and he's another one like Richard Madeley has got a magnificent head of hair for somebody who's well into his sixties. Um, I interviewed him once with Jacob Rees-Mogg in the studio, and again, that was a slightly buttock-clenching interview because whatever you think of Jacob, Re- Jacob Rees-Mogg's politics, he's actually a very polite person and would never ever be rude to somebody, even if he fundamentally disagrees with them. Mm. Um, Professor A.C. Grayling did not look at him once in this interview. And bear in mind, I'm the presenter. I've got both of the interviewees, so one on the left, one on the right. They're about three feet apart, and he didn't look at him once. And he spent the whole time just insulting Jacob Rees-Mogg on a personal level. And it was, I found it a very unpleasant experience to, to host. It's a low blow. And, and you feel as if you then have to defend Jacob Rees-Mogg as the host, but mm. actually, I mean, he, he can defend himself. Um, and it was, it was all about, the, it was for a Brexit podcast that I used to do. Um, and it was just an unpleasant experience. It sounds like he's trying to um, sort of prove his relevance and make him... Make, uh, well, it, it, have a point. it's just that mindset that some people have where they think they know better than everybody else. And because he's a professor, because he's known as the country's leading philosopher, therefore his view must take priority over everybody else's. Um, and the fact is that, that Mrs. Miggins at 32 Acacia Avenue Scunthorpe, she has a right to express her view in the same way that Professor Grayling does. And all this thing about, oh, well, we didn't know what we were voting for and the implication that people who voted Brexit were thick is just so elitist and insulting. And he he sort of personifies that. Okay, all right. A.C. Grayling, Professor A.C. Grayling. Anything else on Professor A.C. Grayling? No, I think we've said enough about him. Okay, (laughs) on the island. Um, And your third choice, who's going to be your third choice here? You might think my third choice would be somebody that I'd want to be on the island because he could obviously make all the food. Um, It's Jamie Oliver. Jamie Oliver. Who I cannot abide for many, many reasons. The first one being that I grew up in a village five miles away from Jamie Oliver. Um, I used to, as a teenager, would go to his parents' pub fantastic pub the cricketers in Clavering in Essex for anyone who wants to go um, they did fantastic food it was known as the, the the best pub in the area if you wanted to go and have a meal and I would spend probably I'd probably go there twice a month sort of when I was 16 17 18 okay. um, and I'm going to ask you a question now. Does my voice sound anything like Jamie Oliver's? Does my accent sound anything like Jamie Oliver's? No, not at all. No, because he's a fake. Oh. He's a fake mockney. Okay, yes. And um, I didn't go to privates. I went to the local comprehensive. Um, where Jamie went to the local grammar school. Mm. So in theory, his accent ought to be posher than mine. Okay. And... Um, it, it isn't, is it, really? So he's built this character. He's built this character, the sort of lovable rogue, mm. and it's complete fake. <gasps> now, I don't know whether he speaks like I do in his normal life or whether he puts <laughs> that accent on when he goes on TV. I don't know. But the other thing that I really can't stand about Jamie Oliver is the constant lecturing us on what we should be eating and cooking. Now, 
obviously tv chefs they're there to show us their recipes and all, all the rest of it and he's obviously got a massive following mm. but when he starts trying to tell the government what they should do in terms of obesity um i then turn to the menus at his restaurants and look at the calories and look at the sugar content uh, and i actually did this on one of my programs i actually re- read it yeah. all out I should have brought it with me you should yeah, yeah. and it is just so hypocritical. Some of the things on his dessert menus, for example. Uh, and he was pictured in the paper the other day. You know the government now want to ban um, Tony the Tiger and cartoon characters from, from food packages. So yes, you, I've seen you, this. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, there he is, pictured with a cartoon character to try and sell one of his very sweet desserts. Now, if you have a strategy for combating obesity, fine. But carry it out yourself. Mm. And the third thing, there were quite a few things about okay, yeah, that I like. Yeah. The third thing, it slightly goes back to our last discussion about Brexit. Um, quite a few of his restaurants have had to close. They've gone out of business. Right. And he blamed Brexit for it. And I'm thinking, hang on a minute, mate. We haven't even left the EU yet. Mm. Um, other restaurants seem to be doing quite well. Uh, can you really blame Brexit for this? And then I looked at the locations and what, of some of his restaurants. Um, his restaurant in Tunbridge Wells, where I live, mm. which closed, was on a street that has no footfall in the evenings. Right, OK. So you think, yeah. well, look in the mirror and tell me that that is Brexit, that has closed your restaurant in Tunbridge Wells. It's not. It's because you put it in the... You, you, you got the wrong lease in yes. the, on the wrong building. Yeah. And I just think he's a walking example of fakery and hypocrisy. <gasps> wow. I don't think that's libelous, is it? No. <laughs> So much as I would probably quite like to eat a lot of his food on the desert island, yes. I, I'm afraid I would forego that because he would drive me absolutely insane. Okay, yeah. <laughs> First thing, where did he pick up that accent, Jamie? Um, interesting. And yeah, you see, he he comes on LBC quite a lot, but he always goes on with James O'Brien, who worships the ground that he walks on. Right. Um, he's never been on with me. I wonder why. So it, have you been vocal about this before? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah obviously yeah. you said. Yeah, oh, no, okay. no, no. Whenever there's an obesity subject and he's he's on it, I, I, I have a real go at him. Yeah. And my producer hates it because she says, well, he'll never come on your programme. I say, I don't want him on my programme. I don't want fake people on my programme. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. So uh, we'll have to do without the delights of Jamie Oliver in future. Jamie Oliver. I mean, he just seems so friendly and lovable, right, in his programmes. I'm sure he's a perfectly nice guy, but I... Yeah, okay. I think you have to, as David Cameron used to say, you have to keep it real, and I I don't think that he does that all the time. Maybe none of us do. Maybe I'm being unfair. It's your No, it's your desert (laughs) island. It's exactly who you want to put in. Don't let me sway you. Um, Okay, Jamie Oliver, for his fake mockney and general fakery. I do think that that's a bit... It's a bit off, isn't it, to say you should be doing this, you should be doing that across the country when he's not really upholding that in his restaurants. It's a bit no, unfair. and I think the other thing is if you, I I have been to his restaurants on a couple of occasions, and his prices are always two or three quid above what they ought to be. Okay, and obviously they they've got his name on the door, so I suppose he he can use that to have higher prices than a than a sort of co- than a competitor, but I don't mm. think it's paid off for him in in the long run no probably quite more reasonable than other celebrity chefs though right well it's interesting pricing. that a lot of the celebrity chefs have had difficulties when they've opened restaurants mm. Gordon Ramsay has i think greg wallace has um and in a way thinking about it, there are very few of these celebrity chefs that I really like i I don't find them. 
nice personalities particularly. I think we need to go back to the days of Delia Smith and Fanny Craddock. Do you remember Fanny Craddock? You're <laughs> Fanny too young. Craddock. Or the Galloping Gourmet. Do you remember him? <laughs> no. Graham Kerr. He was an Australian chef. And he was on ITV, I suppose, in the mid-70s. And he was really good. I mean, he was a genuine person. There was no sort of showbiz element to him. I think the problem is they're all trying to be funny. They're all trying to be something that actually they're not. And, I mean, Greg, what's his name? Greg Wallace and John Terode. What's the programme they do? Um, MasterChef. MasterChef. Yeah. I can't watch them. No, okay. I just can't. It's like a double act. Mary Berry um, is interesting. I interviewed her for an hour once. Mm. Um, She's an interesting character. Not not quite as nice as she really i know no, no, i committed sacrilege no. by saying that <laughs> you um, can't get i also made her cry which i felt very guilty about all in this hour all in this hour this is an interesting hour please <laughs> do divulge well her son was killed in a car crash and i mean that was I, I had to be fair about until she was on um whatever that show is what's it called again the bake-off that's one that's yeah. the one i had never heard of mary berry Um, So she was quite new to me. So I had to read up quite a lot about her to be able to interview her for an hour. Mm. And obviously one of the things was her son was killed in a car crash. I mean, absolute tragedy. Mm. And I thought, well, I can't really go through an hour talking about her her life, her career, without talking about some personal things. Um, And I have a tendency to be, should we say, fairly lachrymose anyway. And I'll cry at Emmerdale. So I was quite worried about approaching this because it is a really, really sad story. Um, and clearly, I mean, it happened quite some time ago, but it obviously, I mean, if your son is killed in a car crash, that never goes away. No, of course. And um, she did get a bit tearful, which, of course, then made me a little bit tearful. And, I mean, from a radio point of view, I suppose it was good radio, but it, I, I I, really felt for her. Mm. But she, she's quite, apart from that, um, you can see where she, why she's got to where she's got to, because she's, she's quite determined. I won't say she's hard, but... She wasn't quite what I was imagining. Okay. Not, not in a bad way, necessarily. Um, but I used to do this... It was all to do with her autobiography that she published. I used to do this book programme on LBC, and there, there was, we're slightly veering off the subject here. No, does, no, does no, matter? it's interesting. Yeah, no, no. Um, but I interviewed Miranda Hart, who I love. Mm. I love her sitcom. But she, she was a hard interview. Really? Um, and... She, I don't like call the midwife, and so we started talking about that. And I, I just said, well, it's not a program I really like very much. Which I don't think anybody had ever said anything negative to her before about any program that she'd done. But I thought, well, I said to her, well, there's no point sugarcoating it. If I don't like it, I'm going to tell you I don't like it. It's not not my sort of thing. You didn't open the interview with that, did you? <laughs> no, that was about sort of twenty minutes. Right, in. Okay. But then it got to near nearer the end, and I said, so Miranda, what are you doing next? She said, well, Ian, I'm going to make another series of that program you don't like. Oh. And it wasn't said with any humour whatsoever. <laughs> Learn. Learn. That was wow. I wonder were, were these um, were these interviews uh, videoed for YouTube or anything? like No, that? you see, that was in the days. That the, now, about three years ago, we got this brand new studio, which mm. is effectively a TV studio. So it's yeah. got fourteen cameras in. I've Unfortunately, seen, yeah. at that time, there weren't cameras. So I used to, I, d- I remember doing an hour with Joan Collins, an hour with Joan Rivers. Mm. Um, absolutely amazing interviews, and I, I, mean, I was really nervous about doing them because both of them I, I really liked. And I just, with Joan Rivers, I mean, all you can do in an interview with her 
um, obviously this is before she died, uh, is just play the straight man to her. You you just sort of lob her balls over the net for her to volley back. Mm-hmm. And she was hilarious. Right. And, and Joan Collins was another one where you knew that if you hadn't done your research, if you asked her a stupid question, she would let you have it back with bells on. Okay. Um, but uh, fabulous personality. I wonder if there's something in um, them not being uh, videoed because they're having to switch it on on TV all the time, right? Mary Berry and, and Miranda yeah. Hart. They have to... Mary Berry's always got this smile on her face, you know, <laughs> on the camera. She's always very happy to be there. And I wonder, in a radio interview, when they're not being seen, they let their guard down that, a little bit. That's a really good point, because when you do a phone-in with a politician, um, where they, they genuinely don't know, obviously, what a caller's going to say, um, whether, when the cameras are off, obviously, uh, you have some idiot that comes on and asks a stupid question or tries to get one over on them, and the politician can look at you as the, as the host and do a wanker sign. <laughs> Well, you can't do that if the cameras are on, can you? Of course not. Uh, and also, um, Emily Thornbury, who I really like, she comes in quite a lot. She came in during the election. I was doing the Saturday morning show. And um, she turned up looking as if she'd got out of bed. And I said, now, Emily, I have to tell you, the cameras are on. She said, oh, fuck. She's, <laughs> she's got um, quite, a, quite a potty mouth, oh, Emily wow, Thornbury. Okay. And, um, but she didn't really care. George Osborne, when he came in just before the referendum, he wouldn't have the cameras on because he said, well, this is radio. Mm. I said, yeah, but radio has evolved over the years. We now, if you say something interesting, we're then going to do a video clip, put it on Facebook and Twitter and all the rest of it. And that's the reason why we now have uh, on LBC more listeners in the 15 to 24 age group than many music stations because they they see all these things on their Twitter feed. So they, they listen to us, whereas they might not have done before. Um, it's been really crucial to us. Yeah, and they see a, a clip. Oh, it's only a minute and a half. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll look. You know, which is frustrating for me because I always want much you want longer clips. I know. But the, all the all the social media people tell me you, the, the best ones are thirty seconds to a minute. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because people think, oh, that's you know, it's, it, I can chew on that. It's, it's quick. You know. So what easy. I try and do is make them when they put it on the website, you have the clip at the top, but then you have a full interview. Extended. If people want to watch the whole thing. I wonder how that affects the interview that you get though, having the cameras there or not having the cameras. I know that it's essential now to to get that audience but i wonder would you get a slightly more open interview if there wasn't a camera or a less guarded interview i think on some occasions that's probably true but you can't actually see the cameras they're sort mm. of hidden in the roof and in the walls so they're so not thinking they're about not thinking about a mm. camera i always tell them the camera's on because it's unfair if you don't yeah um but i i think by and large it, it, it's a positive thing i mean i know that theresa may interview that we were talking about that would not have been as big as it was had it had there not been pictures of it sure absolutely yeah um somehow we got there from jamie Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> ian uh, now mercifully among the wreckage of the plane there was some food and drink left over unfortunately for you it's your least favorite food and drink in the world what are they and why are they so bad um, well, let's start with the food. Food first. Um, okay. I've tried not to go for things that you've already had people say in other podcasts, but I- I'm afraid this is the one area where I am going to uh, relent on that. Okay. But I'm going to go for a combination. Um, it's my nightmare starter, and this did happen to me once. Okay. Where I was served prawns, avocado, and anchovies all on the same plate. Okay. Now, any one of those would have made me want to vomit, but all three together, and it was one of those occasions where you knew that you could not refuse. You had to eat it. Okay. And um, when are you in this situation? <laughs> well, it, it, it was at a dinner. I'm trying to remember who it was. I, I can't remember who. I'm not going to say who it was because it would be unfair. Mm. But okay. It, okay. But it was, it was somebody quite famous. And I don't go to lots of famous people's dinner parties. And I don't really do the sort of 
the political circuit either, partly because, believe it or not, and nobody ever believes me when I say this, I'm, I'm quite shy. I don't mm. like going into a situation where I don't know all the people there. I mean, walking into a reception where there's like 100 people mm. and I don't really know anyone, I hate that sort of right, thing. Okay, but, but you have to do it from time to time. And this was a dinner party where there were about 10 people there and I was probably the least well-known of them. And the hostess was very well-known and um, I just thought, I've got to do this somehow without vomiting. <laughs> so you hate all of these things? I cannot stand prawns. Um, I, I, avocado, I, I do not understand how anyone can eat it. The, the texture of it is so horrible. And the taste is even more disgusting. And anchovies, um, I, there is a joke. I don't know many jokes, but this okay. is one that I've always remembered because my sister told it. Okay. Can I tell this on a podcast? No, I'm not sure. You I can, can. can, absolutely I, well, you, can. If you think it's too terrible, you can edit it Okay, out. go on. What's smellier than an anchovy? Go on. An anchovy's fanny. <laughs> <laughs> well, you normally have comedians on here, so I thought I'd throw in one joke. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And that's where we hook them. I'll put that at the top. Exactly. Um, okay. And I ju- anchovies are just... Ugh, just even thinking about them makes, makes my skin cruel. I'm only ever encountering, it, encountering an anchovy on a pizza, though. You know, when I, it, when, They have what to be taken time? off. I, I cannot... They can't be mixed in with anything. Uh, I mean, I, I am a very, very fussy eater. I, I, okay. don't, I don't like olives. I don't like nuts. So I'm, I'm a pretty bad person in terms of sort of pre-meal food. Snacks and stuff, yeah. yeah crisps I love. Okay. A- any right. any flavour of crisps I, okay. I can happily have. Okay. But no, that, so that's my food, which, I mean, on a desert island, the likelihood is you might be forced to eat a prawn from time to time, yes. I guess. Well, yeah. Possibly. And I, I, don't, I don't know where anchovies come from. I mean... I don't s- even want to speculate. Sea, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> probably probably a farm somewhere near where I don't know but yeah um, and avocado should an avocado grow on the island um, the fats and the salts and everything that you get from it would be would be really good for you surely but well I think probably on a desert island you have to eat what you can get hold of absolutely but, see coconuts yeah. I wouldn't be very good with them either no you don't like coconut no. wow bananas love bananas okay. I, when I, I my first school exchange to Germany in 1977 <laughs> Um, I was known as Banana Boy because that was all all I would eat. Because I, I wouldn't eat the German food. I love German food now. But you just didn't want to try it at the time. No. What caused you to be a fussy eater? Do you think? My mother. Okay. Who was a lovely, lovely woman, but she didn't drink tea or coffee. I don't drink tea or coffee. She didn't eat fish or cook fish. I don't eat fish. Okay. So I, I, and I, I kind of blame her for my sweet tooth because I've also got type two diabetes, and it's because anything sweet, I will doesn't matter what it is, I will eat. Okay. If I go, if I buy, uh, if I get a tank of petrol, I will then buy a Mars bar or a packet of fruit gums or right. whatever. Um, so I do kind of blame my mother for that. But um, okay, I see. And it just <laughs> so so then obviously because you didn't have it when you were younger, then I, I think. Over time, I, I mean, I used to have pizza without cheese because I didn't like cooked cheese. I'd eat normal cheese, but I didn't like it cooked. Whereas, so, and I wouldn't eat tomatoes. So I, I do eat these things now. Mm. So I have become slightly uh, more. Did your mum eat cheese and tomatoes? Uh, yeah, Can't she really. did actually. Okay, interesting. But ah. see, my dad. I remember once she decided that we all ought to eat porridge because it's healthy. Right. Okay. So she cooked it. She slopped it in the dishes, put it on the breakfast table. I've got two sisters, and my dad were there as well. And my dad refused to eat it, so therefore we felt licensed to refuse to eat it okay, too. Okay, right. I see. <laughs> well, when you were younger, if you didn't eat, if you didn't want to eat something, did you get something else, or was that it? 
I don't ever remember anybody saying you'll sit that either of my parents saying you'll sit there until you eat it. I do remember saying that to my dad once when uh, in for the 50th anniversary of D-Day I took him to the Normandy beaches with a couple of others and we rented a, a house and uh, went to a restaurant one night and I can't remember what was put in front of him I probably chose it and uh, he just sat there and like pushing it round his plate and I do remember saying to him and he was would have been probably about 75 at the no maybe 70 at the time and I just said you'll sit there until you eat it and he did <laughs> Because when you get, when your parents get older and you, you sort of take them under your wing a bit, mm. the, the, the roles reverse. Right, okay. And uh, I found that on quite a few other occasions. I took him again when he was in his early 80s to Arnhem to, because he, I mean, he grew up in, he was born in 1929, so he was a teenager during the war mm. and lived on a farm. And his entire adult life has been dominated by the war. He would just watch war films, read war books. Um, uh, and so we took him I, uh, well I took him to Arnhem and then we also took we one of our relations we found a, a, an uncle of his had been killed in the First World War so a few years ago we took him to Belgium to find the grave which we did which was a really emotional experience my two sisters came along as well and um, but again it was like he he was turning into the child and we were turning into the parents and slightly uncomfortable in in some ways yeah and I remember also taking him to the playoff final in 2012 uh, when West Ham played Blackpool I'm a West Ham season ticket holder and he had supported Blackpool during his early years Mm -hmm. and they they were the sort of Manchester United of of their day Mm -hmm. and it was the first time he'd been to Wembley since 19 the 1948 Matthews Cup final and again, I I felt really protective towards him because right, he was a okay. bit he was a bit immobile by that t- point, and I knew that he couldn't walk very far. But it was yeah the role reversal. It was a complete role reversal. Okay, I'll look out for that. This is like a Ronnie Corbett monologue, this isn't it? Sort of <laughs> yeah. going off in all different <laughs> tangents. <laughs> It's my job. It's my job to edit. <laughs> so, Ian, prawn, avocados, and anchovies are going to be your food choice. What's going to be your drink choice? Um, I'm going to choose. I'm going to cheat and choose two: milk and whiskey. Milk and whiskey. And there is a, there is a connection between the two. Okay. Um, I always hated milk as a child, and in those days, this is bearing in mind this is like the late seventy, late sixties, early seventies. Um, we had school milk in these little third of a pint bottles, and it had always sort of gone off a bit at the top. And the, the the milkman would deliver it, and they'd leave it out in the sun, and it was the most disgusting taste. And I just refused to drink it. And I remember once they made me drink it, and I was sick on the floor. Okay, so they, right. never, they never did that again. Okay. And and this actually, I think, led me to become a firm admirer of Margaret Thatcher because she abolished free school milk when she was education secretary uh, okay. in about 1971. Okay. So I thought there must be something good about her. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the reason I go for whiskey is also to do with Margaret Thatcher because in 1983 um, I'd set up. Uh, I was at the University of East Anglia, known in those days as University of Easy Access, <laughs> and um, I had set up a sort of conservative group there because there hadn't been one. It was a very left-wing university in those days, and. Anyway, in January 1983, she invited all the different chairmen of the different universities to go to Downing Street. Well, I mean, this is like a dream come true. I, I didn't even own a suit at that point, so I had to buy a suit. Off I tro- trotted to Downing Street, walk up that staircase with all the pictures of the prime ministers. She's at the top looking minute because she's literally five foot two. Everyone thinks that she must have been quite tall. She wasn't. And she 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 had this knack. She grabbed, grabbed your hand to shake hands. And then as you were shaking hands with her, she would kind of move you into the room. 
Okay. Which was quite a skill, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there, there we were. I mean, I didn't really drink at all at that point. In fact, I don't really now, partly because I have a very low tolerance to alcohol. Even I'm like six foot two, sixteen stone, two vodkas, and basically I'm anyone's. <laughs> so, but you you feel a bit of an idiot at those occasions if you don't have a glass in your hand. So I had two glasses of wine, and the waiter comes along and brings another glass. So I thought, well, okay, I, I don't want to be without a glass. So I took one, and I started to take a sip of it, and just as I did that, she kind of walked past me. So I took this sip, but it wasn't wine, it was whiskey, which was her favourite tipple. Oh. And I found myself, just as she was walking past me, sort of starting at... <laughs> and I was nearly sick at her feet. <laughs> the thing is, had I been sick at her feet, she would have completely taken it in her stride and she would have cleared it up herself. Right, okay. she, she'd done that. I, I remember there was an anecdote um, with Jeffrey Howe where he spilt something over his lap at a dinner, and she immediately, of course, the the, the waitress who had spilled it was horrified and mortified at what she'd done. And apparently Margaret Thatcher just took charge and said, "Don't you worry, my dear." And she got a sort of cloth and cleaned, cleaned wow, it all up herself. Amazing. So that is, I mean, I, I, I've never been able to drink whiskey uh, to this day. Whiskey and milk as well. Yeah. What a combination! Wow, what an amazing story. Um, okay, Ian. Um, I'm uh, sorry. Fortunately for you, you won't be without entertainment on the island. The plane's entertainment system continues to work, but just your luck, it only has two working settings. One is your least favourite film of all time, and the other is your least favourite song. What are they and why? I'm going to pick Paddington 2 as my least favourite film. Um, Paddington 2. <laughs> you might think, well, why did, if you hated Paddington so much, why did you watch Paddington 2? <laughs> well, the first one was actually okay, but the second one, all the reviews said it was absolutely brilliant. So mm. I, was, I was sitting there. You know what it's like when you're really looking forward to watching a film and then it is such a disappointment. And I actually switched off halfway through because I couldn't bear it any longer. Mm. I just thought it was just so false. Um, and the storyline was just very, very weak. I thought the acting performances were dire. Hugh Bonneville, I thought, was awful. And um, it was a really real disappointment. But I, I picked that as an example of the genre of follow-up films which just don't live up to the initial one. Okay. I think if they don't, don't put them out. Okay, or yeah. don't even try yeah. to make them. You look at sort of Speed 2 or X-Files the movie. Have you seen that? <laughs> no, I've not seen I mean, it. I was a massive fan of the X-Files, but yeah. the movie was just... I mean, I couldn't follow it. They didn't seem to have a plot. Like most Star Wars films don't seem to have a plot, do they? And that, that seems to be the thing nowadays. Uh, you can have all the sorts of brilliant special effects and all the rest of it, mm. technology, uh, and don't really worry about the storyline. And that yeah. doesn't work for me at all. Is Maybe it, I'm showing my age. No, no, it's, it's them trying to, um, to trying to eke out all, more money, but yeah. da- damaging the reputation of the brand, right? But there are brands that... I mean, James Bond, for example, is one mm. where that brand has not been damaged at all. You look at the... Um, what is it? The Tom Cruise one, um, where they've done three or four of those. I can't even Mission remember. Impossible. That's the one. Yeah. Um, you know what you're going to get, and, yes. you're, and you're not disappointed. Mm. And I, I just think sometimes with these sequels, they Home Alone two. For example, I mean, you think back to that. There's all sorts of one examples that you can give. That they very Independence Day too. Now Independence Day is my all-time favourite movie. Absolutely love it. But the second one just wasn't half as good. I didn't even know there was an yeah, no, really Independence Day. I, mean, I, I wouldn't really bother with it. Um, Airplane 2. Again, 
Um, you're looking as if you've never heard of airplane. No, I know airplane, <laughs> but I didn't know there was an airplane too. I well, didn't there know is. It yeah, and okay. it's not a patch on the. I can still mm. watch the original. I remember going to see that on a double bill with the Life of Brian, which I found deeply unfunny, um, at Cambridge Cinema back in about 1978. And I probably seen airplane, the original one. 15 20 times and i still find new things in it each time i watch it that i hadn't noticed before okay. it's like it's because it's, it's got a certain subtlety so many levels humor, yeah, yeah. Mm. um so yeah it's sort of sequels that i don't really like okay interesting it's, i think it's a lack of consideration maybe they just sort of rush into these things and and it's like okay while the while the iron's hot let's knock another one out so we can make yeah, more money. Yeah, it, it's a bit like books, I suppose. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I've I spent 20 years in publishing mm. and you, the, if you do a successful book, the temptation is always to do a follow-up and it, it very rarely works. Um, I did one called Sex, Lies and the Ballot Box, all about funny things that happened in politics, which sold phenomenally well. They then did a follow-up called More Sex, Lies and the Ballot Box and it hardly sold a copy. You think, well, why haven't the people who bought the first one bought the second one? Because clearly it did well. Mm. But, hey. Well, why, why doesn't it work? Yeah. Uh, Ian, what's going to be your song choice? My song choice is um, a song called You Say It Best When You Say Nothing At All by <laughs> Ronan Keating. You say it best when you say nothing at all. I'm so interested in this. Why this song? <laughs> Um, I actually quite like the song, okay. but I don't like it sung by Ronan Keating because Ronan Keating in many ways has a great voice, but he's one of these singers that over-sings. Okay. So instead of singing, you say it best when you say nothing at all, you say, you say it best okay. when you say nothing at all. Okay. And I hate that. I hate over-singing. And mm. he is the primary exponent, I think, of over-singing. And I went to see Chess the other day, the musical, which I, I, was my favourite musical. I've seen it a dozen times in different productions all over the country. I even saw it in a dinner theatre in Boulder, Colorado once. That wow. was an experience. Okay. Um, and it was on for a six-week run, just finished at the Coliseum. And I was really looking forward to it. Michael Ball was in it. Um, and Alexandra Burke was um, played the Elaine Page role. And there were two others who, one of them, um, I can't remember what the woman's name was, who played the Barbara Dixon role from the original. And all three of them oversang the whole thing, which often happens in musicals. And it just didn't work. Michael Ball was fantastic, but the rest of them I just thought were too determined to shouty sing. And shouty okay. singing is never good. No, I see. Over singing and pushing yourself yeah. to try. Yeah. Is there a version that you enjoy? Can you think of a. Um, I'm sure there is, but I can't remember who. I mean, obviously that was a cover version because virtually all of Westlife was he in West? No, he was in Boyzone, wasn't he? All of their songs are cover versions. Okay, um, but, and some of them actually work really well, mm. but not the ones where he's the lead singer on them. Oh, cutting, wow. controversial. <laughs> They'll be playing this on Magic Breakfast. <laughs> Ian, and finally, the island is overrun by the biggest dick of all the animals. Which animal is it, and why? It's kind of an obvious one, because I think this animal creeps everyone out. It's the rat. Rats. Mm. Um, I cannot stand rats. And my experience of rats, because I have one, is that I grew up on a farm in Essex. And my dad decided that one of the things he wanted to teach me about, because bear in mind, I was born in 1962, and all of my family were farmers. So by rights, instead of doing this podcast with you now, I should be mucking out the pigs. Sure. Because it was that you, the, the, the oldest son always took over the farm. Well, I kind of haven't. And um, so when I was, 
I don't know, six, seven, eight years old, um, my dad thought he would show us how they used to do the harvest when he was that age. And of course, there weren't combine harvesters then, there were binders. Okay. And these were sort of contraptions that you'd tow behind a tractor or even a horse, Mm. and it would make sheaves of wheat. Yeah. And so he did this, and he grew a kind of wheat that you could make corn dollies out of, because believe it or not, a lot of people would pay money for that. And so we would stack these sheaves of wheat on pallets in the barn, and then uh, six, seven months later, if it hadn't sold, you'd then just burn it. So you'd take the wheat sheaves of wheat off the pallet, but of course as you did that, rats would start running out, because that's where they had kind of nested. And you'd get to the last oh. pallet, which literally was moving because oh. there were so many in it. So you'd lift it up, and literally there would be a 100 rats that would run out. You had to have your trousers over your Wellington boots because they would run up your trousers. No. And we had a, um, a golden Labrador and a Jack Russell. Well, they thought their Christmases had come at once. Yeah. And so that they were sort of killing them left, right, and centre. And we were sort of stabbing them with pitchforks oh, oh and whatever. And, I mean, looking back, it was, it, it was horrific. It's quite horrific, but, yeah. But as a child, it was great fun. Okay, yeah. And um, at the end of it, the dogs would have sort of bloody muzzles because the rats would obviously bite them. Um, and they were absolutely knackered. So uh, I sort of grew up with rats, I suppose, because when you would go out in the fields combining, there would always be sort of rats running around, and mm. um, uh, they'd be running around in the barn. You'd shoot them with an air gun. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and you see, in those days, we didn't have any health and safety legislation to speak of. So at the age of eight, I was in sole control of a gun. I was in sole control of a combine harvester. Uh, and my dad would would have a trailer pulling would have a tractor pulling a trailer full of wheat, and half of the village boys and girls would be on top of the trailer going along the road. My dad would be arrested now for doing that. Yeah, absolutely. and yet we we had the most fantastic childhoods because mm. of it. Mm. Um, and I, I'm really actually quite sad for kids nowadays that they can't experience that sort of thing because a their parents wouldn't let them, and b the farmers would just be arrested. Yeah. But you can see maybe why they don't do it, right? <laughs> well, I can, but yeah. I still think it's... And, I mean, you can argue, well, if if you have one or two deaths a year, but, I mean, obviously to the families concerned, you mm. can't, it's a bit difficult yeah. one to argue yeah, about. Yeah, exactly, it? yeah, absolutely. As rats, yeah, I mean... There was a great book that uh, James Herbert wrote uh, called The Rats, and mm. it was all about Epping Forest. And my uncle used to manage a farm on the edge of Epping Forest, so I kind of knew all the areas. And um, I loved James Herbert books. I got to interview him about a year before he died. And it was kind of like interviewing one of your heroes, but one of your heroes who was in their dotage and he was a bit doddery, so it was a bit disappointing. But his his horror books were sort of my staple reading as a, as a teenager. I got all my sex education from his horror books wow, as well, okay. which is probably quite worrying. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I'll always remember the gym scene in the fog. <laughs> Best not go there, though. For any fans. <laughs> Ian, thank you so much for coming in and doing this. I really enjoyed it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Ian, if, if people want to hear more from you, uh, where can they hear you? Um, my radio show is 4 to 7pm every weekday on LBC. I'm on CNN uh, midday, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays on CNN Talk. You can follow me on Twitter at Ian Dale, I-A-I-N. And you can listen to our podcast, the For the Many podcast, which I do with Jackie Smith every week. It's a sort of humorous look at politics and uh, current affairs. So, And we get a bit smutty as well, as you can probably tell from this podcast. <laughs> You've done that before. All right, thank you so much, Ian. I really appreciate Cheers. it. Thank you. 